All right, there we go. Good morning. My name is Amber. If I haven't met you yet, welcome. I'm the pastoral resident here at the Front Church. My husband Jared and I moved to the Utah Valley this last June, and we have loved making Utah our home and spending time with you here at the Front. We love this community and are excited about what God is doing here. The last few weeks as a church, we have been journeying through the letter of James. James is a letter in the Bible. It's towards the end of the Bible. And James was the brother of Jesus, technically the half-brother of Jesus. And after Jesus' time on the earth, James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he is writing in this letter to Christians who have been scattered outside of Jerusalem. And he writes to encourage their hearts. And it's a letter filled with a lot of practical wisdom for our everyday lives. And he writes to help them turn back to a wholehearted devotion to loving God and loving their neighbor. This week we are in James chapter 4, and we're going to continue unpacking what it looks like to be truly wise, loving God, and loving our neighbor. Before we read chapter 4 together, I want to review a little bit of the end of chapter 3. Because what happened at the end of chapter 3 directly relates to chapter 4. At the end of chapter 3, James contrasts two different types of wisdom. Earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. Earthly wisdom, he says in verse 14 through 16, is described and marked by envy and selfish ambition. Envy is the emotion of self-interest. And selfish ambition is the promotion or action of self-interest. And he says, these are the marks of worldly wisdom. In verse 16, he says, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. And in contrast to this, you have heavenly wisdom, which is described as pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And the fruit of heavenly wisdom is righteousness, which means right relationship with God and each other. So after contrasting these two different types of wisdom, he jumps in, we continue into chapter 4, and we are going to see that the people are living with disorder and evil practices, and we see that the lives of the believers he is writing to have become marked by worldly wisdom. So he writes to them, and he encourages them to turn back from their self-centered pursuit to humility, choosing to love grace. So we are going to read chapter 4 together this morning and look at the problems that they're having and what um, James says in the midst of their struggles. If you have your Bibles with you this morning or the Bible app on your phone, I invite you to turn to that and read along. It will also be on the screen if you would like to read along that way. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God, and when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? 
Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? This is why the scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you're double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go and do this or to that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? Do you not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. I think that one of the most important tools that God has given us, maybe the most important tool, to show the world who he is and to demonstrate to the world that we are his followers is the depth of love that we have for each other. During Jesus' ministry on the earth, he said to his disciples, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Biblical love is like a race to the bottom rather than a race to the top. It is a race to outdo one another in showing honor to build one another up, and to serve one another. Biblical love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way or rejoice in wrongdoing. Biblical love is servant-hearted and humble rather than self-seeking. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read James chapter 4, I'm not seeing a whole lot of love going on. In verse 1 through 3, there's fights and quarrels and coveting and selfish desires. They're even treating God as this magic prayer genie who answers all of their wishes and desires. In verse 11, they're slandering one another and speaking evil against one another. In verse 13 through 17, they're making their own plans and doing their own thing, pursuing wealth and ambition and never asking God what his will is or what he wants for their lives. At the heart of their problems is the pursuit of selfish ambition and pleasure. This is the opposite of the love that is meant to mark the community of believers that we are. As I was studying James chapter 4 the last couple weeks and thinking about this theme of self-centeredness and selfish ambition and pursuing our desires, that it's the root of the issues they're having, 
it made me reflect on my own journey. And when I came face to face with how worldly and self-centered the human heart can be, and more specifically, the challenge of choosing to live another way, of loving God and loving our neighbor, often above our own desires for comfort or recognition or wealth, it can be a huge challenge at times. In January of 2013, I was in university, and the Lord called me to leave university and begin what would become a seven-year journey as a missionary. If you're ever looking for a lesson in humility and selflessness, the missions field is a fantastic place to find it. And it also gives you opportunity to kind of step back from your culture to spend time with people who are different from you and have a different culture or who are maybe in a different socioeconomic place in life. And it allows you to look back on your life and to see some of the ways that selfishness and sinfulness can root itself in our hearts. Over the seven years that I was a missionary, I had the privilege of spending time in 13 different countries. And every single day, we were faced with this choice a choice to put our own comforts and desires first or to give them up in order to serve people and communicate worth and value into their lives. Sometimes it was choosing to give up our rights for electricity and warm water, instead taking a cold bucket shower in the dark. Or sometimes it was eating food that we didn't like because it honored the host and the sacrifices they went through to offer it to us. Sometimes it was going to an orphanage and spending time with the kids, finding out they had lice, and then spending the entire day combing lice out of the hair of kids, and despite taking precautions, getting it ourselves. Sometimes it was giving up our right for a bed, and instead sleeping on a sleeping mat in a rural village town on the floor under a mosquito net for days or weeks at a time. There was one time when a teammate had misplaced their sleeping mat in transit, and they were offered a water floaty as a replacement, which was better than sleeping on the concrete, but a water floaty also was not very comfortable. And as a team, we decided in order to bless them and to kind of share the burden, we rotated that water floaty among us so everybody spent a night on it, rather than one person being forced to endure that the whole time. And for me, it was a reminder and a remembrance of what it looks like to live in love for one another as God's community. It was really hard at times to give up our Western rights, comforts, and lifestyles, but by doing so, it enabled us to be like family with the people we were spending time with. And it opened up doors for relationships to grow. Many times the reality is they didn't see or acknowledge the sacrifices that we were making. Instead, what they saw was a guest who was staying with them and living the exact same way that they do every day of the year, 52 weeks of the year. But by choosing to live with them and do life with them, it communicated worth and value to who they were, and it opened up doors for relationship. We were taught as missionaries to approach relationships with the mentality of having two different baskets. One basket that was filled with ways that we were meant to serve and to give and the gospel that we had gone to share, but also a basket that was empty, which could be filled by the people 
in ways that we were receiving and learning from them. There is one time that we, I was with a team of five people in Brazil. We were teaching Bible overview and the inductive method at some different churches. And there's a man in the congregation who came up to us afterwards and invited us to go see his shoe shop. It was his life work, and he was so proud of it, and he was so excited to show us his shoe shop. So we eagerly went with to see his shoe shop. But when we got there, he turned on the lights, and then he looked at us and said, the real reason I brought you here is because I want to bless you. And I want each of you to pick out a pair of shoes from my shop that you like and take it with you for your journey. So I left that day with a pair of dress sandals that are my favorite pair to this day. They have gotten pretty worn, but every time I wear them, I'm reminded of the love and the generosity that he shared with us that day. It's this heart of generosity and selflessness seeking to love and serve one another, that I learned and experienced as a missionary, is something that the community of believers James is writing to have lost sight of. They have turned from the gospel that calls us to love one another and selflessly serve one another towards self-centered pursuits that are resulting in disordered relationships, in fights and quarrels, conflict driven by self-centered desires covetedness and envy, slander, and the pursuit of their own plans are infiltrating their relationships with each other and their relationship with God. Even their prayers are becoming more self-centered, focused on what they want. In light of all of this, James goes so far as to call them adulterous people. In verse 4, he says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. James uses some pretty strong language and imagery here by calling them adulterous people. It is the same language that is actually used throughout the Old Testament when God's people are unfaithful to the covenants that they made with him. When James calls them adulterous people, it is supposed to evoke a strong emotion and reaction in them. If you think about a marriage and a marriage covenant, a marriage is an extremely beautiful celebration. It is joyful, and in that ceremony, two people make a covenant and a commitment to each other. They choose to unite themselves as one, to spend their lives living and for and serving each other. When you unite yourself with a spouse in marriage, you commit to seeking their best, giving them your complete trust and love. But if that person that you made marriage covenants with and vows decides that you are not enough and begin pursuing their own selfish ambitions, and they pursue intimate relationships with another person, it causes so much hurt and pain. And in the end, they come to a place where they realize they can't have both. They can't have a healthy and whole marriage while also selfishly pursuing pleasures and intimate relations with another. There's tension and brokenness when that happens. 
In many ways, becoming a Christian is uniting ourselves with Christ like a marriage covenant. Once we accept Christ, we are claimed by God and given the Holy Spirit, which is a mark of our identity as his. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Now you have heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. Like a ring that we put on our finger at a wedding ceremony, signifying that we are uniting ourselves with another person, accepting Christ and being filled with the Holy Spirit means choosing to align our loyalties and values with his. And it is like committing spiritual adultery when we choose friendship with the world over friendship with God after he has claimed us as his own. Absorbing the world's values about money and fame, success and recognition and power leads to envy and pride and selfish ambition, resulting in internal stress and external quarrels. And it is the opposite of pursuing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control, which are the fruits of the Holy Spirit. If we are honest, committing spiritual adultery and wrestling with the values of the world and the values that God has is something that we all face in certain seasons of our life. And we all need people like James in our life who are willing to help call out the spiritual adultery in our lives. It is so easy to read this passage and to say, oh, well, that's not me. I'm not that selfish, or my covetedness isn't leading to murder or fights and quarrels. And yet we ignore the envy and selfish ambition and sinful self-centeredness that so easily grows and weeds its way into our hearts. Maybe we see that seemingly perfect family with their perfect kids and we become envious and covetedness of their relationship and their family, and we strive to compete, unintentionally letting out bitterness and anger towards our family members and our kids when they don't live up to our ideals and our expectations. Or maybe we pursue greater wealth, the best job and a greater reputation and the prestige that comes with a promotion, sometimes even with good intentions, to gain more so that we can give more and bless other people. But in the process, we gain more comfortable lives and we don't become more generous. Or maybe we work a lot to provide for our families, but end up neglecting them in the process because we focus too much on work. Or we come home expecting our spouse to be ready to serve us because we have been working hard all day for them. And yet that's not what happens and it results in fights and quarrels because we're focused on our self-centered desires first. Or maybe we constantly volunteer, which is amazing and a great thing to do, seeking to serve those around you, but your heart's motivation is for the praise or the sense of control or the question that comes from it. Or maybe you have a disagreement of values with someone at work but you want to keep the peace, so you grumble and complain in your heart, or you talk about them behind their back rather than talking to them, 
and it causes dissension among the workplace. If we are honest, all of these are types of spiritual adultery that make their way into our hearts. And it's so easy to explain them away or say it's not a big deal. And we all face wrestling with the world's desires and God's desires at certain seasons. But there's good news. And the good news is that we have a God who is gracious to the humble and who longs for our entire hearts. James says in verse 5 and 6, Or do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but gives us more grace? This is why the scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. We have a God who is personal and relational. He is not a God who is passive or void of emotions. He created us for relationship with him. And when people, those who have accepted Christ and committed him into their lives, allow their hearts to be filled with worldly pursuits, God is like a spouse who has every right to be jealous for the complete love and devotion of the person they are married to. God has a righteous jealousy for our hearts. And because of that love and the depth of love that he has for us, he offers us grace. Grace means that he treats us with goodwill and favor. He still seeks to give blessings and gifts to us, even when we don't deserve it. His grace and the spirit that is in us also empowers us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And I love how grace is described in the book of Titus. I just want to read this to you really quick. It'll be on the screen as well. For the grace that God has appeared, has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. The good news is God has a righteous jealousy for his people, and he extends grace to the humble. So the question then becomes, what is the path of the humble? How do we receive this grace that he so freely longs to give us? James unpacks that for us in the next few verses, verses 7 through 10, and what it looks like to pursue humility. Humility looks like submitting to God, yielding to his purposes and his position. It means recognizing the spiritual adultery that sometimes invades our hearts and deciding instead to lay it at God's feet and to pursue his path. It looks like resisting the devil. That could mean fleeing from temptation or finding accountability partners to stand with us in the midst of it. It means drawing near to God. And drawing near to God is not just a mental and emotional thing, but is a practical response to God. It looks like loving God and loving our neighbor, just like James has been describing throughout his letter. 
It looks like caring for the poor and controlling our tongues, not showing partiality, growing in wisdom and peace, and communing with God in prayer. James continues to use some Old Testament imagery in this passage when he says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's alluding to some Old Testament purification things that they did. But what he wants to communicate to his readers is that they need to do some internal and external cleanup, that they need to physically change some of their actions and change some of their attitudes. A humble heart is also not double-minded. If your spouse were to commit adultery against you, you would want to know they are genuinely sorry, that they have genuinely changed their actions and their attitudes, and that they are no longer double-minded, but single-minded, choosing to give you the love and commitment that they had promised on your wedding day. Christians should not be, have any question in their minds whose side that they are on. And our lives must demonstrate to others and leave no question in their minds that we belong to God and that we are unyielding opponents to the enemy. When we humble ourselves before the Lord, he lifts us up and he offers us grace. He empowers us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the age that we're in. Where pride and self-centeredness says, my life is my own, humility recognizes that my life is not my own, but a gift from God. At the end of James chapter 4, he says to his readers, what is your life? You ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. James calls them out on pursuing a life that is self-centered, and points them back to God and seeking his purposes and the things of eternal value in life. We all pursue our own plans to some extent, but do we seek God's will in the midst of it? Do we listen to what he is saying and his direction for us? Growing up, three of the most important things in my life were church, family, and cross-country skiing. I absolutely love cross-country skiing. I was introduced to it when I was a high school student, and there was something about the fresh snow that gathered on the trees and learning to ski through the snow and the sun sparkling on the snow and racing and competing against other people and the gift of like gliding on the snow. It's almost like running, except for you can glide more. I don't know how else to explain it, but cross-country skiing is something that gives me incredible joy. I skied all through high school. The middle picture here is high school Amber, and the rest of the pictures are college Amber. I had the privilege of receiving a scholarship to cross-country ski in college, so I skied all through high school and into college. And in January of 2013, when the Lord called me into missions, I was faced with a choice. Something that I had always said was that I never wanted my love for skiing to become more important um, than the Lord, and the Lord tested that. My junior year of college, 
I had just started my third year. And I was the captain of the cross-country ski team that year, which was a really big deal as a junior. We were already partway through our season, and it was then that the Lord asked me to leave and to go into missions. And it was a huge sacrifice for me to lay that down and to give it up and to pursue the plan and the path that God had for me. But if I wouldn't have done that, I never would have experienced and learned all of the things that I did and built the incredible relationships that God gave me. I never would have learned the depth of humility that the Bible talks about or the selfless love that I experienced from the people and what it looks like to truly love our neighbors and our communities. And in the midst of that, though I sacrificed a lot, saying no and giving up skiing, the Lord was so gracious to me. And since January of 2013, when I left to go into missions, I never missed a single winter when he didn't give me the opportunity to ski, even if it was just a couple of days. So that was his gracious gift to me in return for laying down um, the skiing that I love so much. He returned it to me in the midst of pursuing his plan. Now, that's not everybody's story. And we all go on our own journeys of learning what it means to be selfless and to love each other and to love the Lord. But everyone's journey is a beautiful journey. And it's one that we go on together and we learn from each other. I want to leave you with two thoughts this morning. The first is that when we forget God's goodness, we often allow our own pain and self-centeredness to provoke selfish actions and cruel words that destroy our relationships and our communities. If you are experiencing fights and quarrels or struggling with any relationships in your life and community today, are you willing to examine your heart this morning and to allow God to reveal any self-centeredness or spiritual adultery that you might be struggling with? Are you willing to humble yourself before the Lord and receive the grace that he offers us? And the second is, do you know the depth of God's love for you? When we are secure in our identity in Christ and we understand how great and enormous his love is for us, it enables us to trust him and to focus on ourselves less rather serving one another in love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for the gift of your love and who you are. Lord, we pray that you would continually be pursuing us and jealously desiring our hearts, that you would fill us continually with your spirit and help us to say no to self-centered desires. Lord, you help us pursue you and to pursue loving each other as a community together. And when we make mistakes, would you help us to be gracious with each other and with ourselves as we humbly lay our mistakes before you and pursue changed hearts and changed attitudes. Lord, thank you that you have such a deep, deep love for our hearts. Amen.